The town of Breckenridge, Missouri is a shadow of its former self. A century ago, Breckenridge was the hub of local commerce. Its once bustling business district is now a row of dilapidated storefronts collapsing in on themselves. On the south side of Broadway Street, a faded American flag hangs behind the dirty glass of an abandoned storefront window. Across the dusty, hard-packed thoroughfare, a plastic skeleton dressed in a tattered shirt and faded black blazer sits absurdly, slouching in a wicker chair on the vacant sidewalk, and painted on the glass of the derelict shop behind it are the words, Another One Bites the Dust. Just past the dilapidated storefronts in the northwest corner of a small city park and playground is a curious monument that tells the story of intolerance, religious devotion, civil strife, and grisly violence. Every year, in a town that has seemingly been forgotten, hundreds of Mormon families from all over the U.S. and the world come to remember a tragedy whose history languishes in obscurity. Welcome to the Show Me Zion podcast. My name is Paul Atwood, and I am a student of public history seeking a master's degree from the University of Central Missouri. In this podcast, I will be exploring the Missouri-Mormon War of 1838. The focus of this podcast will not only be the history of the Mormon War, but also the ongoing efforts to properly memorialize its most tragic event, the Hans Mill Massacre. On the evening of October 30, 1838, 200 local Missouri militia and regulators descended on the hamlet of Hans Mill, killing and mutilating 17 Mormon men and boys. The bodies of 14 of the victims were hastily interred by the survivors in a dry well and covered with a thin layer of earth. No marker was left on the crude sepulcher as the survivors fled for safety 10 miles to the north at the Mormon capital of Far West. In the ensuing months, every one of the roughly 12,000 Mormons living in Missouri would be driven from the state or have to face a similar fate to their brethren at Hans Mill. To members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the massacre at Hans Mill burns vividly in their collective memory. To residents of Caldwell County, the state of Missouri, and the nation at large, it would be forgotten almost entirely save for a small handful of local historians and hobbyists. As a public historian, my interest lies primarily with the memorials and markers erected at historic sites that have been maintained by various organizations across northwestern Missouri to commemorate and enshrine the events of the Mormon War and the Latter-day Saint experience in the state. Northwest Missouri is speckled with memorials, monuments, markers, and visitor centers that are meant to edify and educate visitors about the civil conflict on the American frontier that would in time shape the geography and fortunes of the western United States. The events at Hans Mill are unquestionably the most dramatic and tragic of the conflict, but confoundingly the site of the tragedy has never received a marker or memorial that would bring justice to the dead or heal the wounds of the past. In this presentation, I will begin with the current state of Hans Mill and a description of the geography surrounding the site. I will then provide a brief history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its founder, Joseph Smith, Jr. I will then cover in detail the events leading up to the hostilities that erupted between Mormon settlers and Missourians in 1838, which led up to the massacre at Hans Mill. The events of the massacre will be told through eyewitness testimony of survivors on both sides of the conflict. The efforts to memorialize the site after the Mormon exodus will then be covered, including conversations I have had with Latter-day Saint representatives, 
local historians, and a descendant of a Hans Mill victim. I will conclude with opinions about how the site should be marked and what the future could possibly hold for Hans Mill. Before we get started, it is important to briefly define what public history is to those unfamiliar with the field. The field of public history differs greatly from the field of traditional academic history. Public history focuses on history education outside the classroom. If you have been driving down the interstate and have seen a sign that says, Historical Marker Next Right, a public historian helped place that marker. State and national parks, archives, and museums all fall within the realm of public history. As vapid as it may seem to some, history can be an incredibly controversial subject. In recent years, public historians have been at the center of deadly debates surrounding Civil War monuments and other vestiges of America's checkered past. What is sacred history to some may mean nothing to others, or worse, offend and oppress. A public historian's goal is to draw people closer together by sharing authority with communities to memorialize and commemorate their sacred histories with the utmost respect for their heritage and historical memory. Because people and groups of people remember things differently, some histories are more controversial than others. To those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the events of the Mormon War are an integral part of their faith and the persecutions suffered during the conflict are regularly revisited by them. This is a rare instance in American history where the losers of a conflict are allowed to define the narrative. Due to this fact, the more faith-promoting episodes in this frontier saga received the most attention, and the grittier details of the Church's role in the conflict have gone until recent years completely unaddressed by them. The events discussed in this presentation all took place within a 100-mile radius of the Kansas City, Missouri metropolitan area. All geographic locations mentioned will be identified in relation to this point. A few miles to the east of Kansas City is the City of Independence, where the conflict between Missourians and Mormon settlers began. Caldwell County, where the majority of this episode takes place, is roughly 70 miles to the northeast of the metro area. Located within Caldwell County are the Hans Mill Massacre Site, the remnants of the Mormon capital of Far West, the Crooked River Battle Site, and the town of Breckenridge. Thirty miles to the north of Far West in Davies County, we find the town of Gallatin and the former site of the Mormon settlement, Adamondiamon. Ninety miles to the northeast of Kansas City, near the banks of the Grand River, is the town of DeWitt, where Mormons attempted to settle but were driven out and the hostilities that followed would lead to the massacre at Hans Mill and the Mormons' forced exodus from the state. Visiting Hans Mill today can be a bit of an adventure if you're not prepared for it, and your experience can go completely sideways even if you are. Due to vandalism and changes in ownership, proper signage is not readily available unless approaching from the east, where you will find a bullet-riddled sign half-hidden by brush that just says, Hans Mill Historic Site. Luckily, the site is marked on popular navigation apps, but the apps do not prepare you for the quickly deteriorating conditions of the rural county roads. The closer you get to the site, the more rutted and uneven the roads become and are completely impassable after a storm or when Shoal Creek floods, which it does often. A four-wheel drive high-clearance vehicle is necessary as the conditions of the road are never certain and always subject to change. Even if you do have a four-wheel drive, there are so many potholes and failing concrete improvements that if you are not careful, you can damage your vehicle. 
After miles of bumpy roads winding through a sea of cornfields, you will find a large, well-manicured clearing and a rustic wooden fence surrounding an improved gravel parking area. There is a single wooden signpost with a blue sign that simply says, Hans Mill, using the old incorrect spelling, H-A-U-N, of the site's namesake, Jacob Hahn, spelled H-A-W-N. Hahn was a non-Mormon miller and carpenter from eastern New York who came to Missouri in 1835 by way of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hahn claimed for himself 40 acres of land in what would become Caldwell County and constructed a mill there. Mills were essential to frontier agrarian life and attracted farmers from the area who would pay to use his mill to grind their grain for market. Mormon families traveling overland from the east would stop over at Hans Mill on the last leg of their journey to the newly established Mormon capital of Far West. Hahn found the Mormons to be fair and honest people and, unlike most Missourians at the time, saw them as merely harmless fanatics. About 20 Mormon families had settled on Hahn's land by 1838. Today, there is no visible evidence that the site was previously settled. The field is empty and is surrounded by trees and cornfields. You can hear birds singing and Shoal Creek trickling along just beyond the tree line. There is no indication that in this idyllic Midwestern setting, a horrifying scene of human carnage was once let loose in a hail of bullets and blades, unless you look closely. In 1941, Caldwell County resident Glenn Setzer took it upon himself to mark some 1,100 unmarked graves in Caldwell County, and with no one seemingly interested in marking the Hans Mill site and facing some opposition, as helping a Mormon cause was still not popular at the time, Setzer placed a single concrete marker by the roadside located behind the current parking area. It is easy to miss if you don't know it's there. I will admit I missed it on my first visit to the site. It is now cracked and weathered from 80 years of exposure to floods and the elements, but it still reads the same epitaph. Southwest of here, on October 30th, 1838, occurred the incident generally known as the Hans Mill Massacre. The history and the names of those killed there are missing from the Setzer Monument, and leaves many questions unanswered. Most importantly, who fought and died there, and how did the massacre at Hans Mill become the deadliest engagement of the Mormon War of 1838? The Missouri-Mormon War was the closest the LDS Church had ever been to collapsing completely. Faith in their prophet was failing, the world was against them, and the state of Missouri sought to destroy them. The following is a condensed version of the early events in the Church's history, a brief overview of the events of the Missouri-Mormon War, and why the events that transpired in Missouri between 1831 and 1839 are worth memorializing. Kneeling in a grove of trees near Palmyra, New York, a 14-year-old farm boy with little education from a poor family prayed to know which of the many churches springing up in the region he should join. He received a revelation that would eventually start a war on the American frontier. In 1820, Joseph Smith Jr. claimed that God had spoken to him face to face and informed him that in time, the true gospel of Jesus Christ would be restored through him. The Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, independently published by Smith in March of 1830, would become the founding text of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as LDS, which was established in April of 1830. 
The book is purported to be a record of Christian prophets descended from a family of Jews that fled Jerusalem in the 7th century BCE and were guided by divine revelation to the American continent. The central event of the book is the appearance of Jesus Christ to the peoples of the Americas following his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Smith claims that an angel directed him to the ancient record that had been engraved upon thin sheets of gold and buried just miles from the Smith family farm centuries earlier by the last of the book's Christian prophets. There are conflicting reports as to how the book was produced, but Smith's followers claim the book was translated by the gift and power of God. Immediate controversy followed the publication of the book due to its bizarre origins and Smith's reputation as a money digger, or someone who claims to have the mystic ability to divine the location of buried treasure and was often hired out by wealthy patrons enamored by tales of hidden Spanish or Native American treasure. Despite the controversy, the Book of Mormon resonated with individuals who were also impressed by Smith's charisma and gifted orations. Scores of people flocked to the church. The controversy surrounding the Book of Mormon and Smith's dubious reputation caused Smith and his followers, dubbed Mormons by others but referring to themselves as saints, to be driven west, gathering thousands of converts. Mormon missionaries arrived in Missouri in 1831 and dedicated a plot of land that still sits empty on South River Boulevard in Independence to be the site of a grand temple complex. It had been revealed to Smith that the land was also the site of the Garden of Eden and had been awarded to the Mormons by God for the purpose of building the holy city of Zion from which Christ will rule after his second coming. The only problem was that there were 4,000 Missourians already living there. In 1821, Missouri entered the Union as a slave state. Many of the early settlers came from the bordering slave states of Tennessee and Kentucky and had been working the land for over a decade. When the Mormons began to immigrate to Missouri from the eastern states and Canada, they brought with them a veritable grab bag of controversial ideologies and unusual practices. They did not hold slaves and were opposed to the practice of slavery. Joseph Smith also had a utopian vision for his church. The saints in the early years of the church were expected to donate all of their earnings and increase to the church, and church leadership would redistribute the goods equally so that there would be no poor among them. Joseph Smith's previous attempt to build a utopian Zion in Kirtland, Ohio, failed spectacularly due to infighting among the saints, financial mismanagement, and aspersions cast upon Smith's moral character as rumors of polygamy and spiritual wifery began to circulate. The Mormons also arrived in Missouri with the expressed intent to turn Jackson County into a gathering place for all Mormons, a new Jerusalem, to pave the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Their abolitionist, utopian, Zionist, and millennialist ideologies were of great concern to Missourians. Shortly after arriving in Jackson County, the Mormons set up a printing press and a storehouse, both of which were exclusively Mormon businesses. The clannish exclusivity of Mormon business relations was a point of discontent for Missourians expecting the Mormons to contribute to the burgeoning frontier economy. With the establishment of a printing press, the Mormons' message began to spread. Theirs was the only printing press within 150 miles of independence, giving them considerable ideological influence. Their religious views were widely considered blasphemous, and their political views antithetical to those of their new neighbors. Frontier writer Alexander Majors explains, 
In that day and age, it was regarded as blasphemous or sacrilegious for anyone to claim that they had met angels and received from them new revelations. According to Majors, the Mormons possessed an audacity that incensed their neighbors. They claimed that God had given them that locality, and whoever did not go into the fold of the Latter-day Saints, that it was a matter of time that they would be crushed out, for that was the promised land, and they had come to possess it. Additionally, it was noted that, quote, the message and style of the paper emphasized the differences between the church members and the original settlers. This only served to deepen the divide between Missourians and Mormons, as the former came to see the latter as enemies of the common good of the growing city. During his first visit to Independence, Smith observed the Missouri settlers and described what he considered degradation, leanness of intellect, ferocity, and jealousy, a people that were nearly a century behind the times. The American frontier was no place for the faint of heart, and its early 19th century inhabitants were unsurprisingly not the sort that put much stock in Yankee eloquence or politis. However, the Mormons were initially warmly received by Missourians. One traveler, well acquainted with independence and its citizens, observed, At first they were highly received by the good people of the county, who looked upon them as a set of harmless fanatics very susceptible of being molded into good and honest citizens. As we know too well, the initial goodwill of Missourians did not last. After several years of simmering resentments, Mormon printing press owner W.W. W. Phelps published the article imprudently titled Free People of Color, which was intended to be a position statement by the Mormons aimed at preventing free blacks from joining the church. However, the article was incorrectly perceived by Missourians as an invitation to free blacks to settle among the Mormons in Jackson County. 400 Missourians and community leaders gathered at the Independence Courthouse on July 20, 1833, and outlined their concerns and crafted their own position statement, which Mormons labeled a, quote, secret constitution. This was, in fact, an extra-legal resolution and could only be upheld by the sheer force of the mob. But this was not an abnormality in the American justice system at the time, especially on the frontier. An excerpt from the statement gives a clear picture of the Missourian anxieties concerning the Mormons. Quote, Elevated as they mostly are, but little above the condition of our blacks, either in regard to property or education, they have become a subject of much anxiety on that point. Serious and well-grounded complaints having been already made of their corrupting influence on our slaves. To white planters, slave uprisings were no longer an imagined threat after Nat Turner's Virginia Rebellion in August of 1831, where at least 51 whites were killed by enslaved people of color. The dreadful reports from the East were no doubt still fresh in their minds. Adding to these anxieties, Mormons felt a religious obligation to convert and make peace with Native Americans, which, according to Missouri historian Paul C. Nagel, quote, was sufficient to prove the saints either seditious or insane or both. Missourians also feared Mormons would soon usurp their political power and fill important county positions with their own brethren. Quoting the authors of this secret constitution, 
It requires no gift of prophecy to tell that the day is not far distant when the civil government of this county will be in their hands, when the sheriff, the justices, and the county judges will be Mormons. The group concluded their statement by recommending that Jackson County be closed to any further settlement by the Mormons. The secret constitution demanded the Mormons depart the county, sell their property, and to close the printing press and storehouse immediately. When presented with the document, Mormon leaders requested they be given three months to contemplate the offer so that they may have sufficient time to correspond with Smith and other church leaders back in Ohio. The Missourians gave them 15 minutes to decide. Boldly, the Mormons refused, and the consequences were swift and dire. The large mob that had been gathered at the courthouse marched to the printing office and threw furniture into the street and garden, broke the press, scattered the type, and destroyed nearly all the printed work. The mob then completely leveled the two-story printing office using crowbars, hammers, and their bare hands. The owner of the Mormon storehouse wisely agreed to shutter his business. Two Mormon leaders, Charles Allen and presiding bishop Edward Partridge, were dragged to the courthouse square where the mob leaders demanded they renounce their religion and the Book of Mormon or quit the county. They refused and in broad daylight were stripped, covered in hot tar, and doused with feathers. The Mormons' refusal to leave Jackson County escalated the anxieties of Missourians into full-blown hatred. Between October 31st and November 4th, 1833, several incidents of armed conflict broke out in and around a Mormon settlement on the Big Blue River in Jackson County. Mormon homes were destroyed and Mormon men whipped. Gunfire broke out between the groups, resulting in the deaths of several Missourians and Mormons alike. Missourians wanted revenge and conspired to lynch three Mormon leaders that had been jailed in Independence. False reports of the conflict at the Big Blue stated that Mormons had raided the home of a Missourian and shot his son. False reports also circulated that Mormons were to enlist Native Americans to aid in their imminent attack upon the citizens of Jackson County. Missourians and Independents gathered arms and ammunition, quote, in preparation for a general massacre of the saints the next day. Upon hearing this, the imprisoned church leaders agreed to leave the county immediately upon release and would encourage all other church members to do the same. The tumult became so worrisome that Missouri Lieutenant Governor Lilburn Boggs called in the state militia to quash the conflict. At this time, 200 armed Mormons were marching to Independence to free their brethren. Upon learning the state militia had been called, the Mormons entered into negotiations with Boggs. It was agreed that if the Mormons surrendered their arms and left the county in 10 days' time, they would not be harmed. The Mormons accepted and wasted no time making their way north across the Missouri River into Clay County. Mormon homes, belongings, and crops were all left abandoned. Many departed with only the clothes on their backs, unprepared to meet the early winter chill. At least two women died during the expulsion, and the men's firearms were never restored to them. The exiled Mormons took refuge to the north across the Missouri River in Clay County from 1833 to 1836. At first they were welcomed by Clay County residents, who offered their sympathies for the harsh treatment they had received in Jackson County. However, it did not take long for them to see that their political power was in danger of being usurped by the growing numbers of their Mormon guests. With the intervention of Alexander Donovan, a Missouri lawyer and politician friendly to the Mormons, Caldwell County was created by the Missouri State Legislature 
1836 as a Mormon homeland. Mormon families had settled in the county previous to its incorporation in 1836. The area was largely unpopulated due to the toughness of the grassland soil. In 1833, three Mormon brothers settled with their families at Log Creek, two miles southeast of modern Kingston, Missouri. They built a horse mill, a smithy, three cabins for their families, and named the settlement Salem. Several other families soon joined them, including Jacob Hahn. The Mormons had agreed to not settle outside Caldwell County, but the grassland soil could not support the growing number of Mormon immigrants from the east. Between 1836 and 1838, thousands of Mormons would flock to Caldwell County and establish the town of Far West, their capital on the frontier. In just two years, Far West would grow to a population of 5,000, rivaling the size of Independence. Far West is now absent from the plains of northern Missouri, but at its peak boasted 10 stores, 6 blacksmith shops, 2 hotels, a boarding house, and a printing press. As they had done in Ohio, and as they had hoped to do in Jackson County, the Mormons wished to build a temple in Far West. In Ohio, the church leveraged every available asset it had and asked its congregation to do the same to build a temple of worship. When it was completed, the glittering white edifice was the pride of the community, and it was said that angels attended its dedication in 1836. However, after an illegal banking scandal and rumors of Smith engaging in an extramarital affair and possibly entering into a polygamous relationship with his teenage housekeeper, many of the Mormon faithful in Ohio had turned against him. Smith also caught the attention of law enforcement, and fearing for his personal safety, ecclesiastical credibility, and freedom, Smith gathered his closest adherents and advisors and relocated permanently to Far West in 1838. The arrival of Joseph Smith from Ohio in 1838 with large numbers of new settlers in tow had a destabilizing effect on the already tenuous conditions that existed between the Saints and the Missourians. Against the established arrangement made with the state that granted the Saints full control over Caldwell County as long as they did not attempt to settle outside of it, Smith ordered settlements to be established at Adam on Diamond in Davies County, and directed the purchase of lands in Carroll County on the banks of the Grand River at DeWitt. DeWitt was to be a port city for the Mormons to transport newly arriving immigrants and goods up the river for the last leg of the journey, all the way to Adam on Diamond, which was established on much more productive land. In August of 1838, the citizens of Carroll County voted in favor of a resolution to drive the Mormons out. When the Mormons refused, they were given an ultimatum, leave peacefully or the militia would force them out. Simultaneously, conflict in Davies County would erupt as citizens of Gallatin attempted to stop Mormons from voting and a vicious brawl ensued. The Mormons beat back the Missourians and the exchange of retaliatory violence over the following months would see the state militia siege the town of DeWitt for weeks until the Mormons were starved out. Mormon zealots seeking revenge for what happened in DeWitt would set fire to and looted the towns of Gallatin and Millport in Davies County. Missourians in Davies County, who had had their homes looted and burned, fled to neighboring Livingston County as refugees. The atmosphere in the Mormon capital of Far West was tense as Joseph Smith and church leaders prepared for a large-scale attack or siege on their city. 
Roving mobs and militia began driving Mormons from outlying settlements in Davies and Carroll counties, forcing them to relocate to far west. Smith encouraged his people to seek refuge and safety there. Hans Mill, only 10 miles from far west and located only 4 miles from the Livingston County line, where many Missourians displaced by Mormon hostilities had fled, was increasingly vulnerable to attacks from militia and vigilantes that were rallying for a fight and clamoring for retribution. On October 26th, a contingent of Mormon militia set out to recover several of their brethren that had been taken hostage by militia patrols along a disputed strip of land between Caldwell and Ray counties. The Mormons raided a state militia camp on the Crooked River in Caldwell County and routed the militia in a daring charge. Casualty numbers were low on both sides, but on October 27th, exaggerated reports claiming that the Mormons had completely decimated an entire state militia platoon made their way to Jefferson City. Upon hearing the staggering news out of Caldwell County, Missouri Governor Lilburn H. Boggs issued Executive Order No. 44, more commonly known as the Extermination Order. The governor called for all Mormons to be, quote, exterminated or driven from the state, citing that their, quote, outrages are beyond all description. Whether or not news of the order from Jefferson City had reached the Livingston regulators and militia before the massacre is a matter of debate, but no evidence indicates either Smith or the attacking militias had any prior knowledge of such an order but it can be assumed it did absolve them of responsibility after the fact. The Mormons at Hans Mill were deeply concerned about the dangerous turn of events and had petitioned Hahn to travel to far west and seek the prophet's counsel regarding their safety. Jacob Hahn was not of the Mormon faith, but he had no qualms with the Mormons, seeing them as honest patrons and was willing to do business with them and let them stay on his land. His livelihood depended on the Mormons. Both Joseph Smith and Caldwell militia leaders advised Hahn to abandon the mill as it was better to, quote, lose your property than your lives. Hahn did not heed their counsel, nor did he share it with the handful of families at the mill. Feeling he had the strength and numbers to defend the mill, he informed the men of the hamlet that, quote, if we thought we could maintain the mill, it was Joseph's counsel for us to do so and not come to far west. After Hahn left Far West, Smith lamented, quote, I wish they were here for their own safety. I am confident they will be butchered in the most fearful manner. Unfortunately, in this instance, the prophet's premonitions would come to fruition. The unfortunate failure to heed the counsel of church leaders in Far West was not the only decision to cause problems for the Mormons. In an account by writer Burjoyce, pen name for Major Return S. Holcomb, details of further detrimental neglect on the part of the Mormons are given. A small irregular militia made up of roughly 25 ill-equipped Mormon men and boys led by David Evans set up patrols to the north of Hans Mill, but on the 28th of October entered into, quote, a sort of a truce with Nehemiah Comstock, a Livingston County militia leader. The Mormons agreed to cease patrols in return for assurances of their safety. Both sides agreed to keep the peace and disbanded their military organizations. However, on the 29th, the Mormons learned that a separate group of Livingston militia led by a William Mann, a man the Mormons had little trust in, 
were harassing Mormon wagons bound for the mill. In light of this information, they resumed patrols, violating the truce. That same day, an agreement was reached by the Gentiles, non-Mormons, for an attack upon Han's mill. 200 militiamen set out on horseback for the doomed hamlet. Numerous survivor accounts have been given over the years. The most digestible account of the massacre was penned by Burr Joyce, a special correspondent for the St. Louis Globe Democrat in 1887. The account was reprinted in the history of the reorganized church. Only portions of the account will be presented here. Suddenly, from out of the timber north of the mill, the Livingston militia burst upon the hamlet. In a few seconds, the air was filled with wild shouts and shots, and the fight was on. It can scarcely be called a fight. The Mormons were thrown into confusion, and many of them ran wildly and aimlessly about. Perhaps half of the men ran with their guns to the blacksmith shop and began to return fire. Some were shot down in an effort to reach the shop or as they were trying to escape. The cracks between the logs of the shop were so large that it was easy to shoot through them, and so thickly were the Mormons huddled together on the inside that nearly every bullet that entered the shop killed or wounded a man. After the engagement was over and all the able-bodied male Mormons had been killed, wounded, or driven away, some of the militiamen began to loot the houses and stables at the mill. In two or three instances, the bodies of the slain were robbed. One man carried away an empty ten-gallon keg, which he carried before him on his saddle and beat as a drum. Another had a woman's bonnet, which he said was for his sweetheart. Esquire Thomas McBride was an old soldier of the Revolution. He was lying wounded and helpless, his gun by his side. A militiaman named Rogers came up to him and demanded it. Take it, said McBride. Rogers picked up the weapon, and finding that it was loaded, deliberately discharged it into the old man's breast. He then cut and hacked the old veteran's body with a rude sword, or corn knife, until it was frightfully mangled. William Reynolds, a Livingston County man, killed the little boy, Sardius Smith, ten years of age. The lad had run into the blacksmith's shop and crawled under the bellows for safety. Upon entering the shop, the cruel militiamen discovered the cowering, trembling little fellow, and without even demanding a surrender, fired upon and killed him, and afterwards boasted of the atro atrocious deed to Charles R. Ross and others. He described with fiendish glee how the boy struggled in his dying agony, and justified his savage and inhuman conduct in killing a mere child by saying, Nits will make lice, and if he had lived, he would have become a Mormon. The next morning, the bodies had changed and were changing fast. There were not enough men in place to dig graves, and it could not be determined when relief would come. There was a large unfinished well at the place, and the bodies were gathered up, the women assisting, and borne one at a time, all gory and ghastly, to this well and slid from a large plank. All of the corpses were disposed of in this way. Then some hay or straw was strewn over the ghastly piles, and then a thin layer of dirt thrown on the hay. The following account was given by Joseph Young, brother to Brigham Young. Some edits have been made for brevity's sake. The banks of Shoal Creek on either side teemed with children, sporting and playing while their mothers were engaged in domestic employments, and their fathers employed in guarding the mills and other property, while others were engaged in gathering their crops for the winter consumption. 
The weather was very pleasant, the sun shone clear, all was tranquil, and no one expressed any apprehensions of the awful crisis that was near us, even at our doors. It was about four o'clock while sitting in my cabin with my babe in my arms and my wife standing by my side, the door being open, I cast my eyes on the opposite bank of Shoal Creek and saw a large company of armed men on horses directing their course towards the mills with all possible speed. At this moment, David Evans, seeing the superiority of their numbers, there being 240 of them according to their own account, swung his hat and cried for peace. This not being heeded, they continued to advance, and their leader, Mr. Comstock, fired a gun, which was followed by a solemn pause of 10 or 12 seconds. When all at once they discharged about 100 rifles aiming at a blacksmith's shop into which our friends had fled for safety, and charging up to the shop, the cracks of which were sufficiently large to enable them to aim directly at the bodies of those who had fled there for refuge from the fire of their murderers. At this point in the narrative, Young recounts fleeing into the woods and hiding until morning. He continues the account returning to the mill. When we arrived at the house of Mr. Hahn, we found Mr. McBride bitterly mangled from head to foot. We were informed by Miss Rebecca Judd, who was an eyewitness, that he was shot with his own gun after he had given it up, and then he was cut to pieces with a corn cutter by Mr. Rogers of Davies County who keeps a ferry on the Grand River and who has since repeatedly boasted of this act of savage barbarity. After viewing the corpses, we immediately went to the blacksmith's shop, where we found nine of our friends, eight of whom were already dead. We immediately prepared and carried them to the place of internment. This last office of kindness, due to the relics of our departed friends, was not attended with the customary ceremonies, nor decency, for we were in jeopardy every moment, expecting to be fired upon by the mob, who we supposed were lying in ambush, waiting for the first opportunity to dispatch the remaining few who were providentially preserved from the slaughter of the preceding day. However, we accomplished without molestation this painful task. I thereby certify the above to be true statements of the facts according to the best of my knowledge, signed Joseph Young. More details are given of the killing of Thomas McBride by Willard G. Smith, who was just a boy at the time. His account picks up in the middle of the fray. And he says, Immediately the mob began shooting at me, and the splintered lumber flew all around. I crawled out and ran into an empty house on the slope near the pond. Here I found an old revolutionary soldier, Father McBride, who had been wounded and had crawled into a potato cellar under the floor of the house. Although I warned that the mob would find and kill him, he begged for a drink of water and to be helped out of the cellar. I then went to the mill pond to get him some water and was deliberately fired upon, the bullets spattering in the water like hail. I escaped without a scratch. The mob did find this aged veteran, and he raised his hands in supplication for mercy, and they were hacked and the fingers split down by a dull corn cutter. Willard Smith's mother... Amanda Smith, describes the murder of her son Sardius and the wounding of her son Alma after the general massacre had stopped. The crawling of my boys under the bellows in the blacksmith's shop, where the tragedy occurred, is an incident familiar to all our people. Alma's hip was shot away while thus hiding. Sardius was discovered after the massacre by the monsters who came in to despoil the bodies. 
The eldest, Willard, was not discovered. In cold blood, one Glaze of Carroll County presented a rifle near the head of Sardius and literally blew off the upper part of it, leaving the skull empty and dry while the brains and hair of the murdered boy were scattered around and on the walls. At this, one of the men, more merciful than the rest, observed, It was a damned shame to kill those little boys. Damn the difference, retorted the other. Nits make lice. Daniel Ashby, who rode with the militia and participated in the campaign, detailed the massacre in a letter to Militia General J.B. Clark a month after the event. His letter gives us rare insight into the actions and attitudes of the belligerents. Not all of his recollections are correct, but individual recollections of the massacre sometimes greatly differ from one another. His letter is presented here in its original form. Dear Sir, in answer to your note of this morning requesting me to give you such information as was in my knowledge relative to the battle fought on the 30th of October at the mill on Shoal Creek between the citizens and the Mormons, I will state that in the company I belonged to was stationed in the rear as a reserve at a distance of about 40 yards from the battle line. As soon as the line of battle was formed and before all troops in the line had dismounted, the fire commenced by Mormons, as I am told by those on the front. The position I occupied preventing me from seeing the commencement, as soon as the firing commenced, the company I belonged to dismounted and ran to the front line. When I got into sight of the positions of the Mormons, they were all in the house. He means the blacksmith shop. Or under the bank of the creek, and the smoke of their guns from both places appeared to be continual. Our men took a few fires at the cracks of the house when I heard the order to charge the house, which order was promptly obeyed. The men ran to the house, and as we approached, I saw one man have out his gun in front of me, and I stepped to one side. The man in front of me squatted and pitched down his muzzle and lay still until his gun fired. And then he arose, and as the above Mormon drew back his gun, our man shoved his gun into the house and fired. By this time, our men got possession of all the portholes, and kept up such a continuous fire that the Mormons could not get their guns out to shoot. They then broke out of the house and ran towards the creek, but many fell in their flight. About that time, I heard a cry of quarters among our men. I recollect distinctly hearing one of our men saying, They called for quarters. I then hollered, Quarters, quarters, as loud as I could, which, I, which was re-echoed by those around me. The firing then ceased on our part, at which time a volley came from the creek. I then thought that they heard us calling for quarters and thought that we were whipped. The firing was then renewed on our part and continued as long as there was a Mormon in sight, except their wounded. After the battle was near its close, I saw some of the Mormons that had reached the base of the hill south of the creek, about 300 yards from us, stop, turn around, and shoot back at us, then ran on. After the battle had subsided, I saw some of our men carry our wounded man into a house and laid him on a bed. Our men, in counting the dead, found one man in the house not hurt, who had fallen down in the early part of the action as was covered by the slain. Those who counted said thirty-one was killed of the Mormons and seven of our own men was wounded. We then got a wagon and horses, and such as our men as was unable to ride horses was put into the wagon and we left the place. The above is the outline of the affair as my recollection serves me. I am respectfully, 
Daniel Ashby. The accounts of the massacre at Hans Mill are harrowing. It is hard to imagine being capable of such evil and malevolence. Humanity, mercy, and kindness are easily lost and forgotten in the fog of war. Building memorials is how we atone for that forgetfulness and bring justice and honor to those who have died in times of war and hardship. When we memorialize a tragedy, we make a promise to those affected by it that we will not forget them or the evils that perpetrated the devastation so that we may avoid falling prey to them ourselves and see that they never return to harvest more innocent lives. A memorial is not just a place for mourning. It can be a place of healing, where a community or nation can gather and learn and grow and let go of prejudice and other evils that sow the seeds of hate. There are places for reflection where we can commit ourselves to be part of a better future as we learn from the costly lessons of the past. They also bring a small amount of justice to the dead as we recognize and enshrine their sacrifices, vowing to never forget. When we hear those words, we think of atrocities like the Holocaust or the attacks on 9-11. And when we visit those memorials in Washington, D.C. and New York City, we are overcome by the care shown by those who conceived, organized, and constructed those memorials. But who cares about Hans Mill? James McBride, the son of Thomas McBride, may well have been the first to make a pilgrimage to the site just days after the massacre. He recounts his visit to the site in his 1870 autobiography. A few rods south of the blacksmith's shop was an unfinished well, about 8 or 12 feet deep, but no water was in it. This made the sepulcher for the dead. Fifteen murdered persons, including my father, were carried on a board one at a time and dropped into that well by Brother Amos McBride, James Daly, and Jacob Myers, the only three able-bodied men that were present. It was now plainly shown that there was no mercy for us. About the first day of November, being tired of laying out in the woods, I concluded to venture a trip to the mill. I was anxious to see the grounds on which the slaughter took place and learn, if possible, the general situation of affairs. Accordingly, with feelings that I cannot here describe, I slowly wended my way to the spot. I walked over the grounds, noticing here and there the blood-stained earth and seriously reflecting on our then-sorrowful situation. On the outside, the logs of the shop were defaced with bullet marks, and on the inside of the shop, the ground was scarcely visible for blood. I traced the blood from the dead bodies of those who were carried and buried in the well. I went to the place and stood at the edge of the silent tomb of my beloved father. A silent prayer I offered to God and turned away. Jacob Hahn sold the mill to a local farmer and moved to Oregon to live out the rest of his days in peace. But one can imagine the weight of his decision to not move his community to safety weighed heavily on his conscience. A man named Charles Ross took control of the mill and its operations briefly. It is believed he abandoned the mill entirely after a flood in 1841. Many old residents interviewed by Caldwell County historian Bertha Booth believe the mill was washed away by a violent flood in 1844. An oft-repeated but uncredited account of an unidentified man described as the son of a Hans Mill victim returned to the site in the 1880s to locate the well and mark it. 
Aided by the mill's last superintendent, Charles Ross, the well was located and the millstone was placed on top of it. That was the last time the resting place of the 14 slain Mormons was identified and marked. A photograph was taken of the millstone in 1907 that shows the stone standing near a creek with the words, In memory of victims of Hans Mill Massacre, October 30, 1838. Another flood washed the millstone into the creek where it did not reappear until years later. In 1914, the citizens of Breckenridge learned of the millstone's reemergence and considered it to be of sufficient public and historic interest to retrieve. Using a mule team, the stone was pulled from the creek and moved 10 miles away to the city park at 6th and Broadway in the town of Breckenridge where it sits today. At first it sat loose in the park with a wooden marker, but after an unidentified party offered the mayor of Breckenridge a sum of money to purchase it and was turned down, remarked, Someday, in some way, we will get that stone. The stone was set in concrete, and a simple marker was placed at its base which reads, Millstone from Hans Mill, 1834-1845. to As mentioned earlier, Glenn Setzer placed his modest concrete marker at the site in 1841, taking upon himself a responsibility to commemorate that no one wanted. The Hans Mill property was purchased by the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1960. The RLDS erected signs identifying the location, but due to the macabre nature of the site and its isolation, it became a popular site for young people to throw keggers. The signage was often vandalized, making upkeep of the site costly. The early 2000s saw a major uptick in the amount of visitors to Hans Mill and interest in Missouri's LDS history. In 2001, the Missouri Mormon Frontier Foundation, a multi-faith secular organization dedicated to memorializing LDS history in Missouri, and the city of Breckenridge dedicated a plaque that sits in front of the millstone and serves to expand on the Setzer marker placed at the massacre site. The inscription reads, Millstone believed to be from Hans Mill, 1836 to 1845. This relic represents a tragic episode in American religious history, a testament to an enduring need for greater understanding and tolerance between people of differing ideologies, including religious beliefs and cultural backgrounds. As a result of miscommunication and feelings of powerlessness to effect change in the wake of what they saw as offensive Mormon military actions in Davies County, Livingston County regulators and other volunteers brutally attacked the nearby Mormon settlement of Hans Mill on Shoal Creek, 30th October, 1838, killing 17 persons, 14 of whom were hastily interred in a partially completed well on the site. In memory of the massacre, local residents moved this millstone to Breckenridge sometime after 1927. Dedicated May 26, 2001, City of Breckenridge Park Board and Missouri Mormon Frontier Foundation. The plaque in Breckenridge serves as a correction to the previous marker that states Hans Mill was founded in 1834, correctly placing its inception in 1836. However, not long after the dedication of this plaque, it was discovered that the millstone was brought to the site not in 1927, but between 1913 and 1915. Those are not the only errors with this monument. 
Sometime after 2001, additional wings were added that for the first time named the victims. The caption, however, is coarse, misrepresents the events, and borders on offense. Quote, These are those that were shot and killed, then stuffed into a large well at the mill. End quote. Those that lost their lives were grieved for intensely, and then with great care were committed to their final resting place by their loved ones that had experienced an unfathomable trauma. The memorial then lists 19 names. In reality, only 14 were interred at the mill, and three died of injuries days later and were buried elsewhere. Another problem with these additions is that it plays into the popular myth that Thomas McBride was a soldier of the American Revolution. Inscribed next to his name are the abbreviations for Revolutionary Soldier. Genealogical research shows that McBride was born in 1776, but the myth was so persistent that the daughters of the American Revolution came to Missouri in the 1930s to find and mark his grave. Part of the appeal of the American frontier is that you could claim to be whoever you wanted to be or whoever other people wanted you to be, including a prophet. In 2002, some 200 miles away, the LDS Church finished construction on and dedicated the monumentally symbolic Nauvoo Temple in Illinois. The Mormons had been thwarted in their attempts to build a temple in Jackson County and then infamously driven from the state before they could begin construction on a temple at Far West. When they arrived in Nauvoo, building a lavish temple was their first priority. However, after the assassination of Joseph Smith in 1844 by an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois, their beloved temple was abandoned in 1847 when the saints departed for the Utah territories. The return of the church to lands from which they had been spurned in the past serves as a sort of vindication for the Latter-day Saints. Nothing in their culture makes a more powerful statement than building and dedicating a temple which they intend to stand until the end of time. Thousands of Mormons and non-Mormons alike flocked to the LDS historical sites on their way to Nauvoo in 2002. The upswell in visitation and interest in LDS historical sites provided the means and justification for organizations to invest in public history projects. In 2003, the Community of Christ, formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, placed the first-ever interpretive marker at Hans Mill. It provided a detailed story of the site and modest description of the event. Unfortunately, when the LDS Church gained control of the site in 2012, this interpretive marker was removed and all there is now is a single signpost and the deteriorating Setzer marker. The LDS Church has been conspicuously absent from efforts to preserve the history of Hans Mill or honor those that gave their lives for the church's cause through proper memorialization. The road sign at the east entrance is a Community of Christ sign that has had the logos removed. The most concerted effort by the church was an 11-day archaeological dig, coincidentally scheduled during the summer of 2002 when thousands of Mormon pilgrims would be passing through on their way to Nauvoo. In nearly a decade of ownership, the only improvements to the sites have been a fence and a parking area. Over the past century, the LDS Church has poured significant resources into sites at Adam on Diamon, Far West, Liberty Jail, and the Old Pioneer Cemetery in Richmond. Since obtaining the site, the church has done thorough archaeological research at Hans Mill, but why is the church so reluctant to tell the story of Hans Mill and memorialize the saints that lost their lives there? 
I spoke with the area president of LDS Historical Sites, Russell Cannon, over the phone recently to ask some pointed questions about the church's perceptible lack of enthusiasm for preserving, marking, and memorializing certain sites in Missouri, namely Hans Mill. When asked why there had been no attempts to mark the site or memorialize the dead in the past 10 years, the answer was disappointing. I was informed that there were scores of LDS historical sites to develop and that the time had not yet come for Hans Mill. I was gently rebuked when I suggested that it seemed like it was just not a priority, because what other answer could there be? The church commands its members to donate 10% of their income if they want to be considered in good standing and have access to the temples. Multiply that by the current 16 million members and budgetary issues cease to exist. I was told that many historic sites presidents would like their sites to receive greater attention and development, and that it was not that Hans Mill was not a priority, it's just that it wasn't the right time yet. Mormons believe that God is an eternal being and still speaks his will through a living prophet. They believe that God has his own plans for things, and we are just here to obey his commandments as delivered by his chosen prophet. So by that logic, I guess his answer makes sense. Hans Mill will be memorialized on God's timetable. After all, what's 180 years to an eternal being? To someone that does not share the same views, it can be easily deduced that it's just simply not a priority. When asked if the church had done any outreach to the state of Missouri to help memorialize the site, Mr. Cannon simply said, No. I continued to press for reasons why the church has not committed resources to the memorialization of the site, yet references the events of Hans Mill very often from the pulpit. Mr. Cannon provided some valid logistical concerns. The roads are in terrible shape and are owned by the county, and the church does not want to promote visitation to a site that could cause visitors to get stuck or endanger them. Mr. Cannon also added that the area is still prone to violent floods that would wash markers away. While these conditions are not ideal, there are workable solutions. Coordinating with Caldwell County to improve the roads would be inconvenient only if you did not want to do it. It is hard to imagine Caldwell County would be adverse to improving a road that could bring tourism dollars to the locality, especially if the wealthiest church in America pitched in to help mitigate the cost. My tone may be getting a little cynical, but I just don't buy the argument that the flooding is too severe or unpredictable. The Setzer Marker, an inexpensive concrete block, has been in place for 80 years and still serves its intended purpose. Modern engineering has come a long way since World War II, and civilizations have been building memorials along floodplains since the days of the pharaohs. Another reason given by Mr. Cannon is that the church is attempting to tone down the victim and massacre rhetoric to reach out to Missourians they are trying to convert rather than alienate. To paraphrase his response, he said, Missourians shouldn't feel bad for what their ancestors did. In my opinion, it may not be the Missourians' obligation to apologize in the first place. Alternative views of the massacre at Hans Mill are sparse, but they do exist. The conversation with Mr. Cannon was more tense than I had expected. I did grow up in the LDS Church and served a mission in Southeast Asia, so I grew up hearing about the tragedy at Hans Mill and the injustice done to the saints there, and it was always treated, to a much lesser extent, like the Mormon version of Wounded Knee. The language used by the church, branding it a massacre, points to this fact. 
Han's mill happened after several hostile engagements, and the two sides were at war. The Mormons at Han's mill chose to not lay down their arms after forging a truce with Comstock. The consequences of that decision led to what some call the Battle at the Mill, rather than the Han's Mill Massacre. To remove all feeling and judge the event objectively, the Mormons arrived as a colonizing force that threatened the freedoms of an already established group. They did obtain their lands legally, but their beliefs and their ever-growing numbers posed a very real threat to the political balance of the region and the way of life practiced by early Missourians. After suffering extra-legal acts of frontier justice for their perceived intrusions, Mormon leader Sidney Rigdon escalated hostilities by calling for and promoting, quote, a war of extermination. The Mormons chose war instead of capitulation and peace at Gallatin before the Election Day riot. They chose war when they were voted out of Carroll County and asked to leave DeWitt. They chose war when they retaliated for the losses suffered at DeWitt when they burned and looted Gallatin and Millport. And they chose war when they did not stand down their patrols on October 30th, 1838. When you choose war, you do not get the luxury of choosing the outcome and consequences. You reap what you sow. Bigotry and intolerance are dreadful aspects of the human character, but Joseph Smith could have chosen lands to settle on that were not already occupied by people that were ideologically dissimilar in almost every way. But according to Smith, it was all according to God's plan. What happened at Hans Mill is a horrific tragedy, but war is an awful beast that feeds on the pride and blood of men and when loosed, does not choose sides and does not stop until it has had its fill. When speaking with Missouri Mormon Frontier Foundation President Keith Bowen, I found that we shared a similar passion for the history of the area that was completely separate from faith. To Mormons, their history is part of their faith, and you can get into hot water for promoting ideas that are contrary to the official narrative or questioning aspects of its validity. Historian Fawn Brody was excommunicated from the church after the publication of her outstanding academic history of the prophet Joseph Smith that went into great detail chronicling his early career as a treasure hunter and his many polygamous and extramarital affairs. The LDS church is not a democracy and does not tolerate open dissent. Out of respect to Mr. Bowen, I want it to be clear that when we discussed our common frustrations with the LDS Church's attitudes towards preserving and marking historic sites, he was speaking only as a historian and not a representative of the Church, and at no point were his opinions critical of the LDS Church. Mr. Bowen reinforced the idea that Church leaders work on their own timetable, and detailed his efforts to mediate the purchase of the privately owned Crooked River Battle Site only to have the church leaders in Salt Lake City show little to no interest. When asked why the church seems to drag its feet on marking and memorializing certain Missouri historic sites, his answer was insightful. In effect, he said, The church has one mission and one mission only, to bring souls unto Christ. Sites like Hans Mill and Crooked River do not fulfill that mission. He has a point. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe that they are the only church in the world that has God's official sponsorship and seal of approval. They literally believe that they are the only true church on the planet, and it is their sole responsibility to save the souls of all mankind, living and dead. 
It is likely a challenge to convince people to join your church when standing on ground that was once covered in the blood, bodies, and gore of innocent Mormons. The same goes for Crooked River, where in the heat of battle, Parley P. Pratt, an early convert and stalwart figure in church history, hacked a Missouri militiaman's face to bits with a cavalry sword. The man survived, but the story is contradictory to the church's ultimate goal to bring souls to Christ, not regale them with morbid war stories. When researching the history of the Mormon War and objectively reviewing the facts, the church does not come away looking like they just kept turning the other cheek and were continually victimized until they were dispossessed of all their property and driven from the state simply because of their faith. Time and time again, they chose war. With no plans in place by any organization to memorialize the dead at Hans Mill, I reached out to local historian Janelle Jenkins, a direct descendant of Thomas McBride, to discuss possible futures for the site. She has been living in Caldwell County and researching her family's history as well as the church's history in the area since 2003. She offered some interesting insight into how the victims at Hans Mill are being memorialized in the information age. Quote, in lieu of a physical memorial at this time, family history websites are being used to memorialize persons connected to Hans Mill. Since the church has been working on greater transparency and making information more accessible online, it has been my pleasure and easier for me to do family history research. In this discovery process, some of the old traditional ways of thinking about Hans Mill have been changing for the better. End quote. The memorial at Breckenridge has always bothered me. Due to its inaccuracies, and with all due respect to the citizens of Breckenridge, its location in the midst of a concerning amount of urban decay. So I asked Mrs. Jenkins how she felt about the monument there, and if it should be relocated to a more family-friendly area. While she was mum on the removal and relocation of the monument, she did not hesitate to express her disappointment with the additions to the monuments there, quote, as they contain some misinformation, end quote. As our conversation came to a close and the discussion turned to how we would like to see the Hans Mill tragedy memorialized, she offered a no-frills approach, saying, I hope to see a memorial created in the future, but not in a way that antagonizes others. Every person deserves to be remembered. I would like to see something maybe like the following. In Memoriam, Killed and Buried Elias Binner, Sr., born 1795 John Byers, born 1815. Alexander Campbell. Simon Cox, born 1815. Josiah Fuller Sr., born 1803. Austin Hammer, born 1804. John Lee. Thomas McBride Sr., born 1776. Levi Newton Merrick, born 1808. William Napier Sr., born 1795. George Spencer Richards, born 1823. Sardius Washington Smith, born 1828. Warren Smith, born 1794. John York Jr., born 1778. Mortally Wounded and Buried Elsewhere Benjamin Franklin Lewis, born 1803 Charles Merrick, born 1828 Hiram Abbott, 
born 1813. Our conversation ended with some shared expectancy as we both, in her words, quote, look forward to the time when circumstances are such that the church can put up a proper memorial, end quote. And not because the living want it, but because the dead deserve it. The day after the massacre, and in response to Governor Boggs' executive order, thousands of state militia marched on the Mormon capital of Far West and were prepared to level the city and raise it to the ground. Shortly after receiving news of the tragedy at Hans Mill and faced with the annihilation of his people, Smith and other church leaders wisely surrendered themselves to the militia. They were held in Liberty Jail from December 1838 to April 1839 until all of the approximately 12,000 Mormons in Missouri had made their way to Illinois in a forced exodus, leaving bloody footprints behind them. Within a few months, the once prosperous Far West became a ghost town. After all Mormons were driven from the state, Smith and his associates were allowed to escape. In 1844, Joseph Smith Jr. was assassinated by an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois. After Smith's death, the church became divided over the issue of polygamy, and in 1847, Brigham Young led a group of Smith's followers to settle in the Salt Lake Valley, where they could practice their faith free of persecution. Looking back over all the hatred, violence, and intolerance of the Mormon War, I can't ever escape the lingering question of what if. What if the Mormons and Missourians had found a way to peacefully resolve their differences? What if independence had become the worldwide headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? What if Joseph Smith died of old age and the saints never went west? How would the events of the Civil War have been impacted if western Missouri had become an abolitionist stronghold? What would the geography of the United States look like today had the Mormon War never occurred? The cities of Salt Lake, Las Vegas, San Bernardino, California, Mesa, Arizona, and hundreds of towns from northern Mexico to Canada would have never been established. There are currently 6.7 million members of the LDS Church in the United States, and 4.8 million live west of the Great Plains. Had the Mormons found a way to peacefully coexist with Missourians and build their Zion in Jackson County, the western United States would be a much different place than it is today. With the future of the Hans Mill site unclear and its stewards operating on an infinite timeline, we can only look back to find the way forward. For all their many failings, the attempts to memorialize the massacre at the mill have not been in vain. Glenn Setzer placed his marker in 1941 and not only found people to be disinterested in marking the site, but even after a century had passed, openly discouraged him from tying his name to a Mormon cause but pressed ahead anyway. Since I was a young man, I have been inspired by, and to the best of my abilities, lived my life by these words penned by counterculture icon Hunter S. Thompson. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. In a letter written by Setzer, addressed to Israel A. Smith, the grandson of Joseph Smith Jr., Setzer outlines his motives for taking up the sole responsibility of marking the massacre site, and offered an explanation that ran completely counter to the words I have adopted as my own personal credo. He said, Years ago, I heard a congregational minister talk to a graduating class on the subject, A thing worth doing 
is worth doing badly. He advised the graduates that when they found something that needed doing with no one willing to do it, to get in and do it the best they could. Even though they did a poor job of it, maybe it would shame someone else better qualified into doing a better job. End quote. His humility gave me pause in my indignation over the poor stewardship of the memories of those who made the ultimate sacrifice at Hans Mill, and my criticisms of the honest efforts of those who came before to remember and memorialize a tragedy most have forgotten. Setzer continued, I hope that this little marker, badly done, may be the forerunner of a better marker. I hope that the feeble start of mine towards marking the historical places of this county may lead to the people of this county and possibly other counties becoming more interested in marking the places that helped make the history of their counties. End quote. I hope that this little podcast, done to the best of my abilities, may inspire others to become more invested in their community's history and to discover and preserve the stories that have defined their identity and heritage. Even if done badly, as long as to the best of their abilities. <laughs>